we shrunk the story down. In fact, we shrunk it not only to the half story. Because they're saying you're really bad is awkward, we just shrunk it to Jesus loves you. That was the other solution. That's so tragically bad, it just doesn't work. I mean, it's kind of borderline heresy, and, and people might buy it for a day or a week or a month, but when something comes along, it doesn't cut it. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. A very good afternoon to you. My name's Sam Hales and you've joined us here on Premier Christian Radio for The Profile where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. My guest today on the show is Peter Linus, the new UK director of the Evangelical Alliance. Originally trained as a lawyer, Peter worked as a barrister in Belfast for five years before studying theology at Regent College in Vancouver. Peter has also worked as executive pastor for his church, Causeway Coast Vineyard. And during his time as Northern Ireland director of the Evangelical Alliance, uh, Peter was a regular media commentator, bringing a Christian perspective to current legal, cultural and political issues. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Now, not long ago, the Evangelical Alliance announced Gavin Calver as the new CEO. And he sat in that chair, I think, on day three of his new role. <laughs> and he said he wanted the organization to be braver and kinder. And then, of course, a few weeks later, it was announced that you would be becoming UK director. So are you going to help the EA be braver and to speak out a bit more? Yeah, I think that's part of the plan is around both the kindness and, and the braveness in this public square. Uh, Gav very much leans into that church space, is brilliant at that, a natural evangelist and leader. I'm really happy to be working alongside him. But yes, my background and experience probably comes more on that public square side, engaging with the media, sometimes on some of the tricky topics, but also wanting to engage more widely on that and see that as a missional space to say, hey, some of the stuff we're debating around free speech, around equality and justice issues, uh, freedom of religion and expression. These are really interesting cultural questions that we want to be engaged in, want to tell the God story in. And we see the biblical text as public truth. It is the story of the world. So it's for everyone. It is what it is to be human. It's lots of things. So, yeah, we're excited. I'm excited to be in that space and uh, enable us to be a little bolder and kinder. It was interesting that, that Gavin used that language because I think, you know, the Evangelical Alliance has been criticised at times for being a bit quiet on some of the issues. And I think Christians would acknowledge some of these issues are very difficult to talk about. But nevertheless, I think there's a there's a sense amongst a lot of evangelical Christians we need a bit of a stronger voice on some of these topics. Um, do you think the Evangelical Alliance has been a bit too quiet in the past? So that's an interesting question. Sometimes on the other side, we get critiqued. Oh, you're always on these issues. You seem to be on the hot button now. Obviously, I'm based in Northern Ireland. Uh, we've had around marriage. We've had around abortion and then transgender. We've written more generally around. So those are certainly some very topical issues. Um, and I don't think they're easy issues. And we've tried to nuance and be kinder and braver in those spaces. So I don't think I would entirely accept we've always been uh, quiet on those issues, but we've also got to represent our membership, which is a broad membership, and we've got to navigate that. So we may have a view and we may hold private meetings quite a lot. We may not always rush to the public square. And one of the things we've got to be cautious about is why we're in that space, how do we articulate that mm -hmm. well, and hopefully in a way that's really helpful to Christians um, who perhaps are struggling in their day and daily basis to, to talk about some of these more difficult issues. Well, we'll delve straight into those issues a little bit <laughs> later on. Uh, but before we get there, it's always good to hear about a person's early life and some of their testimony. So tell me a bit more about growing up in Northern Ireland and where Christian faith came in for you. Yeah, a big part of my life. Mum and dad were Christians. Uh, in fact, my dad just passed away actually at the end of last year, and he was really involved in the church and a lot of the scenes that I was in. He was a businessman. We had a family business and my little brother's taken that over and um, but he was very involved in church and so mum and dad very shaping on my life uh, raised in that kind of culture became a Christian I remember at eight years old but I kind of remember probably before that and probably again afterwards um, and probably raised in a, a typical of my tradition Baptist church small uh, I've joked about this sometimes when I'm speaking the aspiration was everybody in church you know the kids would all head off and get further education often to university but the one thing they didn't seem to prepare us for was university and I really struggled in my faith in that moment didn't feel ready for it felt I had a kind of Sunday school faith managed to get through that managed to really probably find my faith in that through friends and through other writers and begin to realize that actually what I had learned could cope with this sort of dominant way of seeing the world I seem to be bumping into and that was probably the kind of making of me at that time you used to be able to travel on your parents passport and I would have said I was doing that right. until I went to uni and really had to wrestle for myself did I take this thing seriously did it work did I experience Jesus what in were the moment? sorts of issues that were coming up at, at university that prompted yeah that? I think just literally as I went to study law it was like there was no place for faith and I compartmentalized for year one and thought okay I'm learning this interesting new stuff and I've got 
what felt like quite a simplistic faith, and I hoped the two things wouldn't collide. And then I thought, this this doesn't work. We're consistent, we're coherent whole, so we have to wrestle this. I was either going to abandon my faith or I needed to find a way to bring those together. So people like C.S. Lewis, Tom Wright, and friends, you know, live friends, if you like there, <laughs> helped me wrestle some of that and begin to say, hold on, this thing can cope with creation, uh, story, sorry, with questions about where we come from yes. with some of the tougher issues of what it is to be a disciple in that moment. I mean, it might have been simple things. I mean, not that drinking, going out with a, were, are key questions, but when you're a student, you sort of hit that moment of like, what does this mean? Can I do this? I'm like, oh yeah, I can, but how am I going to communicate my faith in a real way? What do these questions look like? And so, yeah, I began to journey through that and it became very real to me at, mm. that, at that time. What was the wider politics of Northern Ireland like in time growing up? Do you remember kind of tensions? I do. I mean, uh, we, we were very fortunate to grow up in the very north coast, a little town in Port Stewart, pretty secluded from the den daily of those. But I mean, I remember you got stopped going into shops. There was always a bag check everywhere you went. Security, that was normal. I remember at uni being stopped by a policeman for an incident I'll not dwell on too much. But uh, but the, he just got out in a kind of jumper and trousers. And I, I turned to my Scottish colleague and said, that's not a policeman. He's, he's got no gun. I can't take this guy seriously because he's just so used to an armed police force. Uh, we, we were in food service as a family business and got the threats around that. Um, I didn't know a lot of that. Dad was able to tell us later we were ready to move country, you know, move to Scotland. Um, you kind of lived under some of that threat. We immediately stepped back from that work. We weren't overly aware as kids, but as we began to get a little older, we began to understand. And we knew people who were directly impacted, people mm-hmm. who'd been killed in the troubles. Now, I want, my upbringing was very fortunate in the sense I didn't have a real direct connection to that, but everybody knew somebody with 3,000, over 3,000 people killed. So more people died in the troubles than in 9-11. And it's not that there's a quid pro quo where we're trying to say that, but, but that's the reality of terrorism in our world. But Mark Sayers, very interesting, came, an Australian commentator of this cultural moment, and came and spoke in our context and said, you guys have journeyed tribalism and terrorism in a way that very few other countries have. And rather than saying Northern Ireland's kind of always behind in this issue, are you perhaps a little ahead in some thinking about how we navigate that? And really provocative mm-hmm. to church leaders to say, actually, we do know what it is like to live in constant mm. sort of terrorist situation, to have a deep tribalism rooted in our DNA, unfortunately, mm. that we've tried to then work through. So hopefully we can also bring some learning from the church in Northern Ireland yeah. into the wider scene. Sounds like some typical uh, cultural wisdom from Mark Sayers. <laughs> uh, yeah, he and John Mark are brilliant on some of that stuff. Both, both are previous guests on this show. And, ah. um, so much interesting stuff to, to share. And I'd, I'd love to dig into some of this more with you when it comes to wider culture issues, because like you say, that's some of the some of the areas you're now working on in the Evangelical um, Alliance. Before we get there, though, what was it about law that made you... Um, I guess, piqued your interest. Why study law at university? Because I like to argue, is what my <laughs> wife would tell you. So I do, I mean, I, I decided, so I thought 16, 17, I really felt I was going to go into some form of ministry in a number of moments where I felt God connecting with me. And I thought there were two options. It was ministry or missionary, and I didn't want to be a missionary. <laughs> so, But I spoke to some good people who said, look, don't go in at 18, 19, you just with no life experience. So study whatever it is you want, do that first and then go on. So I had this interest in law. I mean, I have to joke, it's probably things like LA Law on TV. It was that generation I'm from. Uh, my uncle was law- lawyer. My mom and dad were keen that I went to uni and law seemed like a good idea. It was a good general degree and I did actually like arguing. And so I loved it. I did thrive off. I had a great time. And then I really enjoyed practicing. I, I actually worked as a barrister, the funny ones who wear the wig and the gown. <laughs> and I loved being in the court environment. Uh, and it was, I think, actually a great life skill. I mean, you did the awkward, the divorces, the child custody cases, you did criminal cases, civil. At the start, you do everything. You do a lot of pro bono work, not because you intend to, because nobody pays you, you know, <laughs> that sort of way. But it's great life experience. You see people in these moments and you journey a little bit with them uh, and you have to think differently through situations. So for me, it was a fantastic five years yeah. of experience. I thoroughly enjoyed. What are the common misconceptions that Christians have about barristers? Oh, probably that they're all uh, nasty money. Gra- no, I don't know. I think like it is that we argue and there's an objectivity that can be healthy and an objectivity that can be slightly problematic. Right. So I guess you can switch off from cases, but you have to if you're doing, I mean, some pretty gruesome kind of criminal cases I was prosecuting at times. You have to be able to step back. Right. There's a time then when how do you pastorally re-engage with somebody? And, mm. and there are issues, times when you're journeying with people through relationship breakdown and custody battles. You're like, I want to give you advice differently, but I've got to be really careful to Mm. legally represent you. And of course, you've got the inevitable moment where you're representing people who almost certainly did it. Mm. But if they tell you that, you have to step back. But otherwise, you don't. But I mean, I remember the young criminals would tell us 
how to run their case. That's how we got school. I was going, I, I can get you, I can get you out today. I don't want out. I want to go on remand because I got a better deal and better. I was like, all right, I'm getting an education <laughs> here on how the criminal justice system works. You got some pretty good insights as well. It's a fascinating time. But I, I mean, I did, as I say, thoroughly enjoyed it. And you saw a lot of different people in critical moments. So what took you out of that and on to the next thing? So I think before I went into that, I probably knew I wouldn't stay in that. I felt that moment when I was younger, I'd said to my dad, like, I wasn't going to run the family business. And he'd been great about that and said, no, none of you are going to run it unless you absolutely love this. It would break you, you know, only do it. Turns out my little brother does and that's great. Uh, so it came to the point, my wife and I were just about getting married and we knew we, as we were going out, we talked about going to Bible college. So, and we wanted to get out of the UK and uh, we really didn't want to go to a seminary. I, I still wasn't convinced I really wanted to be a minister, mainly because I'm not maybe the most pastoral person. So when I found Regent College, actually didn't know a lot about it. It was in Vancouver. It was near Whistler. It appeared lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, J.I. Packer was there, Eugene Peterson. I don't even think I fully embraced all of that when I arrived and heard everybody else like this was their lifelong ambition. And I felt we'd, God was gracious and we kind of stumbled into it all. So uh, we both went to study there because we were both really keen to really dig into our faith. And uh, Jim Houston, who founded that, he's a now 93, I think, Scottish guy. So he'd been a professor in Edinburgh University during the war and the air raid. So he'd professored during the day, if you like, and gone up on the roof at night to do the air raid. And he talked about those two things. And then he said, why would you take your law, in my case, whatever it is, up to this level, kind of, and then leave your faith at kind of Sunday school level? Or co like, you've got to fly with both wings, he would say. And I guess that was the challenge of region, was to take my faith to the same level I was prepared to take my law. Mm. And a lot of people in the region go back into the workplace, which really excited us. Now, I ended up actually doing the MDiv, more than ministry type training. But I loved working with others who were going back into whatever, any mm. kind of marketplace kind of job. And that really challenged how we're going to think about our theology. Yeah. Do you think when it comes to faith, you're more of a thinker or a feeler? Thinker. I'm an INTJ and I'm an Enneagram 5 for those who like I'm a total love information data, love to think. So it I guess that's processing. ideal when it comes to study and Bible college, you know, Vancouver, as you say, very well-known theological institution. That side of your faith is, is going to be really helpful for that. Yeah, I remember coming back to a wedding when we were away, being back and going to a friend's, a law wedding. And uh, I said to them, I now get why at one o'clock in the morning you're reading case notes and I never really was interested. But now I'm about, I'm at one o'clock in the morning, I'm happy reading theology of them. I'm <laughs> loving it. Uh, and I always felt in court at the mercy of somebody who was just more committed and was going to read more than me. Whereas in this space, I love it. I, I think I'm as committed as anybody. I, I love this. How do I help Christians navigate this cultural context? So yeah, I love getting into information, listening to stuff, yeah. digesting it. So then you came back from Vancouver back to Northern Ireland? Uh, yes, back to Northern Ireland, and Paul Williams was teaching in Vancouver. He's now head of Bible Society in the UK, and he'd just come towards the end on the marketplace stuff, got me into more how I could maybe think more like public policy and integrate my faith into the public square. So opened up some doors I just hadn't thought about, and he got me into connecting me with Jubilee Centre, nearly went to the Centre for Social Justice here, looking at different kind of policies. So went to Jubilee Centre in Cambridge, kind of Michael Sluter, and did a couple of years there. And Rose and I both worked kind of in and out of there and really enjoyed, again, the shaping and beginning mm -hmm. to think, how does faith really impact public policy? Yeah. And during this time, were you, were you kind of feeling out a sense of calling of where God might be taking you? Because you mentioned, you know, that you, you'd never really quite thought you'd be a barrister forever, but you also weren't completely convinced you'd go into traditional church leadership. So there was there a kind of working out of where exactly are you calling me and where do I fit in this picture? I think so. And one of the things I reflect on, I like kind of faith in public square and faith at work and some of this calling. I mean, I think we're absolutely called to follow Jesus and I talk about this sometimes, and if more, you know, more time to explore, I think we're gifted. I think the biblical text is clear about the call to follow Jesus. I think the language of being called to ministry, even to be a lawyer, to be a nurse, is kind of funny language. is isn't, I don't see it in the text. I only see the call to follow Jesus. Uh, but then I see a commissioning or a gifting. So I probably shifted in my own language. I began to think, have I not heard God's call? Am I confused? Have I had lots of different callings? Or actually, has he gifted me on a couple of key things around advocacy, around strategic thinking and some teaching that I have consistently worked through? So actually now with young people, I'll try and explore gifting a lot more as they're on that journey, especially with the challenges of lots of different work. You know, most people have three or four different careers, eight to 10 different jobs, you know, AI coming down the tracks, lots of things as we think about work that actually I think gifting is a more biblical and helpful way of framing that. So, but I explored my gifting, I would say, mm. now in hindsight in that period, the way I'd have probably talked about calling at the time. Mm. Uh, and I think God was developing character, building up some strengths and a range of experience that 
turns out actually have really come together and, and I feel now I'm really in the space mm. where, where those things do work together for the kingdom. I'd love to chat a bit about church, Causeway Coast Vineyard. Yes. I hear some great things about this church, especially when it comes to pioneering healing on the streets. Yes. Um, tell me a bit about, the, for those who haven't heard of it before, it's quite an influential, I think, church in, in Northern yeah. Ireland. And you've been very hev- heavily involved. So tell us some, some good stories that will encourage us. So it's a incredible place. Alan and Catherine Scott planted it. Catherine Scott who wrote Hungry and a few other songs. They came 15 years ago, 16 years ago, maybe now. Literally themselves and their mother-in-law, father-in-law, and his brother-in-law. There was like five of them. We now gather, I don't know, 12... 100 adults on a Sunday or 1200 people I think with kids and, and, and a lot more than that connect over the over the month um, and I kind of I suppose we just began to flip the model instead of it's all about coming to us and all about meeting Jesus and coming to our church it's like how do we see city transformation how do we release people gifted individuals back into the culture and um, how do we see healing so again we started with a healing service then we did healing on the streets and we put the seats out. And I remember before I joined the church, I thought these guys were pretty wacky. I'll be totally honest. And they were just there in the, in the town center with seats out. People would come. They'd invite them to sit down and be prayed for and people would be healed. But all of that was a step, if you like, to just releasing everyone to say, let's go pray for healing wherever we are. So the real stories we love are the ones when a person's on a train and praying for somebody. So you move from that, come to our meeting to a kind of, that's the, the gathered, if you like, to the in-between, the hybrid where we're saying, let's go on the streets, but it's a sort of scattered, gathered, a bit of a hybrid. Ultimately, we want everybody scattered out, praying for people, giving words of prophecy, seeing people healed, inviting people to, to meet Jesus with, without even necessarily having to come to the Sunday service. So we've seen, you know, lots of people coming and encountering Jesus um, really heavily linked with our compassion ministry. So having a huge kind of impact on a town. It's a pretty small area. Uh, it's where I grew up. I love it. But it's maybe only 50, 60,000 people in the area. And, you know, 1,200 of them come to the church, another mm-hmm. maybe 1,000, 2,000. Two, two and a half thousand over the course of a month are going to engage in some way in youth and kinder us, meet us. We suddenly start to have a tipping point impact. And just God's been incredible. And I mm. suppose we've seen the supernatural break out a lot more and, and teaching and training people mm. into that. And listen, hey, we've got loads to learn and we people have been really generous and in feeding into us and helping us and steering us on the journey. But it has been a phenomenal kind of uh, group and, and church community to be involved in in mm. this season. I'm aware the answer to this question might just be no. But I wonder <laughs> if, uh, does, is there something about the culture of Northern Ireland that there's just slightly more of an openness towards Christianity than there is on the mainland? So I think I, you could have said that 10, 15 years ago. And arguably, we're, we're more inoculated against it in some way because so many people have had a version of it. And it's had a bad so experience religious, of it, I Yes, suppose. and yeah. such a bad experience. So the street stuff's really interesting. I mean, I was, Alan Scott, who found the church, and I went out one day with people, and we were the disasters at it. It was so funny. We were the worst at kind of engaging people in the street and getting <laughs> response, but everybody else was. But that was the beauty. We were just still pushing ourselves out to do it. But you did get the mixed bag. I mean, a lot of people were like, I don't need it. Thank you. No, I've had that. And you have to respect that moment. You can ask the question, but not more. But we're just saying, you know, um, basically we're asking, like, what would you most like to see shift in your life? What would you most like to see Jesus do? What could we pray for? Um, people are relatively open to prayer, but yeah, Northern Ireland's definitely a shifting culture at the minute, mm. and that's one of the big challenges for all churches. So let's talk a bit more about your new role, UK Director of the Evangelical Alliance. What does that mean, and what are you going to do? Um, so great question. It's a new role. We didn't have that before. Um, so, I mean, one answer could be the things that Gav doesn't want to do, and there might be some <laughs> truth to that, but no. So Gav brought me in. It was really, uh, I, you know, I was really pleased to come alongside him. One is a UK aspect to that, so Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. I think EA, from my experience, has navigated the nations and the UK way of doing things um, well. Um, And so people come and ask us for our experiences, so we want to make sure that's an important part of what we do. So I still live in Port Stewart. I come in and out of here every so often to London, but we're saying we don't all have to be, senior staff don't all have to be in London. So that's a big part of it. Um, I think secondly, we both love the church, Gav and I, different ways we that, that kind of plays out. So it's probably equipping and discipleship for me. And then the public square is a big part of that. Mm. Uh, we want to help resource you know, our public leadership program, our voice into the public square. We want to speak on some of the big issues. You know, you've got the obviously Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England, but after that, it's maybe not as clear where people go for a distinctively Christian voice that's thoughtful, that's nuanced. So we want to both model that by doing it but we don't want to be the exclusive voice we need to signpost our members and then equip others to come up so we've a range of really articulate christian voices i think we're lacking some of those kind of public theologians and spokespeople that we can turn to there are some 
but they're not as many as there could be and mm. should be hopefully and if we could train and equip people better and model something that's our hope so i think that's you know part of the range of what we're doing mm. yes the braver kinder but it's deeper than that we're doing a kind of being human project it's a three-year thing we're saying look rather than some individual strands of work that people might have picked up on sexuality or transgender or something all of that is is the most contested notion we put this on our podcast what it is to be human is that the big issue of the day i was just listening to something on the way in asking that question and i feel like i'm hearing that in christian and in the mainstream culture the beginning of life the end of life sex gender race disability artificial intelligence work rest play all those things are asking questions like mm. what is it to be human in this moment i think yeah everyone can agree we we need some stronger christian voices out there for sure i hear that a lot from christians bemoaning the lack of uh clear articulate articulate thoughtful christian voices but we're talking about the evangelical alliance specifically and there is a there is a question mark here of this word evangelical what does that word mean to you so yeah i think we want to both play into our history so we're 170 years old and people sometimes think oh so what's new and the two things i want to say on that are like for 170 years ago from word go, we spoke about freedom of religion and speech, so it's not surprising we'll lean into that. And we fell out with the Americans on the issue of slavery. And I think it's an important piece of history, as in they said, we can own slaves and still be here. And they said, it's a secondary issue. And we said, no, it's not. We, the Brits, <laughs> who were... So the Brits said, no, we, we, we can't have you together now. So that core idea around justice issues, what it is to be human, um, to be in slavery, was, was core DNA to us. It goes right there. And then I do think the word evangelical is potentially problematic we're aware of that people ask that question and um, i think we need to be careful that american evangelicalism does not define everything and the americans are saying that too so there's plenty in that context they're saying be really careful that's an important group but south americans uh, you know what's happening in iran and the far east and, and lots of different countries and here in the uk that is a that's a different understanding of evangelicalism we take the text really seriously we love jesus uh, and his death and resurrection right at the core of that and there is an activism that comes out of that those core aspects of evangelicalism that someone like Bebbington has defined, I'm like, yes, I am there with that. I realize it's a slightly more contested term at times. So we want to hold the flag up. So rather than always fighting on the boundaries, we're saying it is a table to gather around. I mean, I think Christianity today and the states used this analogy when they were critiquing Trump. We do gather a table and say, come and have the conversation. But we also carry a flag at times to say, but we're also pretty clear on some issues what we believe. The text is really important. We're going to champion that and likewise Gavin and I have had that conversation say yes we're going to say here's the flag come rally around it um, but rather than always feeling like we're policing the boundaries we're not particularly interested in doing that let's go there's there's work mm. to be done there's kingdom business to be on yeah uh, let's get excited about that and move I, forward I understand that reluctance to want to just be pigeonholed and go along with a the dominant American form of, of evangelicalism. But that is exactly the problem, isn't it? That when a lot of Brits hear the word evangelical, they think of those people who voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, and we've we've got to do a piece of work on that. It's right in our core DNA and our name. So we've thought about that a few times over our long history. When I came in, there was a conversation about that. But in the end, we've said, look, this is the term. This, this, this is it. So rather than allowing that to define us, we've got to get a bit better in our comms on the front end. We've got to explain what evangelical really is in the end. And I still think there's some useful way of saying there are tribes within Christianity, you know, from East and West, Protestant, Catholic. There are different ways we understand ourselves. Those aren't always negative boundary markers. Sometimes that's about grouping together in a healthy way. And we've got to be careful because one of the things we're seeing in our culture is either a global world or a very individual world where are the smaller communities you can form around that aren't bad. They're not unhealthy, I don't think. And we're saying that around this. And we want to champion that and say we're still excited. There's a unity that brings us together in terms of our mission in that mm. moment. Coming to the the public issues, the Evangelical Alliance took a stance and has taken a, a stance on marriage to say it's between a man and uh, one man and one woman. And obviously you would make that argument from scripture. But isn't the problem here that, that not just Evangelical Alliance, but Christians in general have failed to articulate that perspective well in the mainstream? Because culturally, you could argue, it's now a complete anathema to say that, right? And then there are media platforms where if a Christian turns up and says, I believe in marriage between one man and one woman, they're going to be shouted down. We've seen this on TV. So has there been a failure of Christians to communicate lovingly, but also clearly a Christian sexual ethic? Yes, Absolutely. Um, I think Glenn Harrison picked it up in his book, A Better Story. He and others are right in that observation. Um, so I think some of us, we are trying to do that. We're on the back foot. Uh, I mean, I got a call from BBC last night because our law is just changing. You know, it changed technically a few uh, months ago now, I suppose, but it comes into effect 
this week coming and they were asking about that and it's almost that when you have an English journalist ring they're just like oh is this still not here yet um, and you're like well yeah there's 170 countries in the world still hold to a traditional understanding of marriage there's like 21 now or something have changed so we want to put some context but we have not articulated well enough so most people anchor it in Leviticus or in Romans and I want to anchor it in Genesis too you know for this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and go to be with his wife there's a framing paradigm there from which I want to build everything around how we understand relationships and, and build out, but we have to put a, absolutely a positive sexual ethic in play that we totally haven't done. So we're hoping with some of these conversations we can do that better. Anchor it in being human and saying it's fundamental who we are that we're made to relate. What does that look like? What's a healthy context for that? And then saying are there ways we can respectfully disagree? So I think we also haven't done well, and we've been trying to work with local LGBT community saying we both agree, we, bo- we both want to see thriving. So rather than just assuming you guys are bad or you assuming that we're bad, and we've had that shift from the moral majority to the immoral minority we're perceived as, saying we actually want to see thriving too. Can we agree that we're both looking to the same thing? What does it look like to flourish? And then in the middle, we're going to disagree about some ways to get there. But I think that goes to our whole gospel story. If you take the arc of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, I've said often like the church, certainly I was raised in, starts with fall and redemption. And it cuts out the creation and cuts out the restoration. There's all sorts of history why we did that 150 years ago. We shrunk it down, did the gospel mission, got it across simply and quickly. In the process, that became really individualistic, really focused on saving souls and started with fall, which is not where the Bible starts. We get no bridge build to say, of course you're wired for relationships. Now, we all do relationships in flawed ways and broken ways. Let's talk about that at some point. Of course you're wired to be content in the body you're in because we're wired to be in bodies. We are embodied beings. There's no other way that we could be in this world. Now, if we have a disconnect in that, that's going to be a huge jar. So let's take the it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good and, and, and build our bridge there. And then at some point, we're going to come to the loneliness, the disconnect, the brokenness. I think we all also see in the world. I mean, Stephen Fry's got a podcast out in The Seven Deadly Sins. It's fascinating. <laughs> He's like, we need a word for this. He's anti-religious He's by his own definition. He says, the problem with the world is me. We need to stop blaming everybody else if he's taking his own responsibility. And he says, we need to actually call it something like sin. And then he said, at the end of the day, we need to lie back in our beds, reflect on what we've done, think it over, and then get up the next day and try and do something different. That's dangerously close to the examine and to confession. He's just <laughs> missing the transformative part of the gospel because you can't do that on your own. But man, do we build a lot of bridges. When I listened to mm. podcasts, I was like, I'm 95% with you. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales. Hope you're enjoying my conversation with Peter Linus. He's the UK director of the Evangelical Alliance. You'll hear lots more from Peter coming up right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Nona Jones is a top executive at Facebook. Here's her advice to Christians on social media. It doesn't matter how many followers you have if those followers are not following Jesus through you. We're meant to be conduits of the gospel. And if we're building followings to ourselves and to our own brands, um, then we've missed the mark. And that's just the truth. Read the full interview plus news, features, reviews and more exclusively in Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the publication that sponsors this show. Premier Christianity magazine is the UK's leading Christian magazine. It features loads of great interviews, all the latest news and analysis from a Christian perspective. You don't want to miss it. We are giving away a free copy direct to your door. All you have to do is go to premierchristianity.com, click on give me a free sample copy, type your address in, and we will send you a copy of the very latest issue of the magazine. If you're enjoying this interview, you'll love the mag. Do it now, premierchristianity.com. Time now to rejoin my conversation with Peter Linus. Peter is the UK director of the Evangelical Alliance. He was very recently appointed to that role. And we're digging in, in the second part of our conversation today, into all the hot topics. We'll talk about transgender, abortion, religious freedom, and loads more issues, including how Peter sees the UK church and how optimistic he is about its future. So without any further ado, let's listen in. Andy Crouch was saying, I happened to meet him last summer at Regent in Vancouver, and I, I got a little window with him, but he said, 
He's written all these different books, culture making, great book, etc. He said the TechWise family is going to surpass them all in what it sells. And he said the reason is because it connects with people. But second, he said I, he gets into more speaking invites on that than anything else combined. But it gets him into all sorts of spaces, companies, schools, general organizations, not faith based. And that's his missional bridge build moment, mm -hmm. if you like. And it's like, it's, it's perfect. Mm -hmm people don't know what to do with technology. We're rushed, we're hurried. John Mark Comer's book, I'm sure The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, will get all sorts of sales from people well beyond the church because we're like, I feel overwhelmed. Mm. I just feel exhausted. Can somebody help me? Yes. What about Sabbath and some spiritual practices? Yes. Whatever you want to call them, you need yeah. to rest. We're like, yes, there's another connection point we want to yeah. build on. A few minutes ago, I put a question to you which basically assumed, hey, if we as Christians can get our language and our delivery better on issues of sexual ethics, then the world might hear us out. But there are some people who would object to that line of questioning and would say to me, actually, it doesn't matter how clear we are, how, and you've just articulated a wonderful way of, you know, go back to Genesis 2. It doesn't matter how clearly we do all that. At the end of the day, we're going to be hated. We're going to be disliked and people won't get it. And there are some people who would say, look, okay, yes, we can tinker around the edges and try and make Christian sexual ethic more palatable to the culture. But at the end of the day, we are going to be ridiculed for this and we need to just be a bit more comfortable with that. What's your, what's your response to that? I think it's both and. I think that is partially true. But I read that in some different way. So just the very act of being married to the same person, happily so, speaking well of them, raising kids who honor their parents and not in a heavy-handed way, but who don't just get straight access to technology, who you know are engaged with us, that's going to become a standout thing in our culture already, largely is. So you don't have to kind of get on about it or make a big deal. You just live that way. But if we're not, and there are Christians who aren't, and their marriages aren't a good model, that's also going to be a, a real problem. So I think what we did was we didn't say a lot about how marriage needed to look, about what it looked like positively, and then we drew a line really late in the day. That's problematic. And our culture's not going to like some of what we have to say, and we do have to be okay with that. Where's the frame? So the frame for me, as an evangelical, as we're saying, is going to be the biblical text. I don't see any other way to read that. Um, and, and then I want to look at organizations like Living Out. I want to take Dave Bennett's book, A War of Loves, and say, you're really challenging me as to how I have to think about this, the implications for you in terms of celibacy, but the implications for all of us in terms of how we do marriage and how we do parenting are going to be huge. But I think actually to stand out and be distinctive is going to become easier in a culture that's all over the place on this stuff. Uh, a few weeks ago, I interviewed one of the candidates for London mayor's name, Sean Bailey. He's the yeah. conservative candidate. And he said that Christians in this country are persecuted. Do you agree with him? So I'm pretty cautious about using the persecuted line. I don't like it. I don't like that language. People come and ask me to speak about it. And I said, no, I, I really don't think we are. Otherwise, we undermine what real persecution looks like, which is what you're going to get in North Korea and Eritrea and, and, and Iran and, and various places around the world. You know, you need to go to the open doors, watch list. I want to say to those people and read down it. You need to get your Christian solidarity worldwide and release and say, that's persecution. That's a different thing entirely. Now, are there moments where we're marginalized? Are there moments where it's contested? Yes, there are. And I think one of the big things we're seeing for Christians is instead of maybe once a month in work, you hit an issue where it's a bit tricky and you kind of come back, oh, that was a bit tough. Let's go to a small group and talk about it. It's like every day we feel like we're on the back foot. But we need to be careful in a, in a contest mindset as well. One of the things I've been chatting about recently is that move from contesting everything to contending. So what do you mean? I was like, well, we need to really be praying for it. We do need to be out in the streets or walking around our work. We need to be reading the text. We need to be taking Sabbath. John Tyson, I think, in New York talks about this kind of contending word. It's a, it's a real deeper wrestling. It's what Jeremiah did, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray for it in a different way rather than seeing ourselves in a contest. And also remember, and you have to be really careful with the phrasing in this, but essentially the, the key battle's already been fought. I mean, the problem with the Left Behind series is not just that it's badly written in my own opinion, sort of suggests there's some doubt in the future about the battle. That, that, that is done. And so we're living in that. The analogy, the bit, it's, it's flawed one I use, it, 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 like we're 10-0 up. You know, there's two minutes left to play and suddenly they're in our 18-yard box. And then we're getting all excited going, oh, no, I think they're going to, you know, we're under pressure. It's like, well, you know, we're 10-0 up. Remember, like this, the game is not in doubt at this moment. But we get ourselves into a bit of a flip. Like, how could we be persecuted when we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit when we're living in resurrection life? You can be marge and here. I've never been stopped from sharing my faith. Never. I mean, I get invited onto radio, BBC radio. That's that's not what happens in persecution. Now, there is marginalisation. We need to take that seriously. But I think we worked out there are 50 million gospel conversations happen in the UK every year from the different polling 
and uh, how many stories appear in the newspapers and the kind of Daily Mail or whatever? Like well, five, maybe. Well, but this, I, but it's, it's one it, in a ten million. No chance. I want to say to people like it's there are not that many major incidents where we get a conflict of faith in this moment. But there have been so. I, I hear what you're saying that there's not that many objectively. But if we look at the news coverage. Um, not just to the newspapers you mentioned, but generally in the Christian media, it's almost on a weekly basis you've got someone saying, um, I wasn't allowed to wear a cross at work, or I was disciplined at, at my workplace because I offered to pray f- with a patient. And, and obviously all of these cases are quite different, aren't they? And yeah. I've looked at them and I've thought, well, some of these look like genuine religious freedom cases, and some of them I think Christians are just being a bit unwise, and you have to work within your your yep. workplace and work within the rules but the fact is there is case after case after case where i think a lot of christians look at it and they they're worried they think well can i share my faith at work because it looks like that nurse just got sacked for doing so so it's a good question great at speak up as a resource we've done small booklet on that i, I think over a hundred thousand now we've given out we work with lawyers christian fellowship to say where are the boundaries and there are very few limitations in the public square some in work you've got to be aware of the power dynamic for example but I'd still say, so I, I know most of those cases because the lawyer in me loves them. And there were one or two where people were unwise. So, you know, if you're told the person doesn't want prayer and you continue, that's not helpful. There are one or two others that the person won in, in the cross case. And so we need to be aware of those. Um, but I'd still say you take the even the five, ten year horizon. We can name those cases because they're still pretty interesting that got to a case level. I'd still argue there's maybe 10 or 15 big cases in the last five, ten years out of 50 million interactions a year. So uh, we'll need to hold the context. That's the marginalization. There are one or two moments where, of course, somebody gets carried away. Either a Christian doesn't do it wisely or you know, definitely where people get unfairly treated. And the courts have been reasonable. They're not perfect, but they have mm. tried to find a pathway. There's an understanding still that freedom of religion and freedom of speech are important. It is interesting that, I mean, you're the lawyer here, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think every single case of a street preacher being arrested, they have not been charged. Yeah, I think there was one was there that might one, be slightly maybe? complicated, but basically they haven't, because the law is In clear. almost every yeah, case. Yeah, absolutely. The they get is. arrested, and, and actually what seems to be happening is the police seem to be sometimes holding their hands up and saying they made a mistake, really, if you if you look at them, and saying, actually, we should never have arrested that person yes. for preaching on the street. So when we see, again, story after story, and there have been a number of them through the years now of street preachers being arrested for saying things that passers-by haven't liked. Yeah, so we're not alone in that. There are other, there are some interesting cases in other, pardon me, contexts. I mean, around transgender, for example, there's a case live in the courts a minute challenging police guidelines for going too far. So this guy has been, Harry Miller has been done with a uh, non-crime hate incident. So they acknowledge it's non-crime, but it's a hate incident, and he's saying, and the guidelines oblige him. So that goes on his police record, and he's challenging that. So again, that's helpful context to remember. We're not alone. You will obviously, in a police force the size of what we have here, you'll get police officers who misunderstand intentionally or unintentionally and therefore make the arrest under pressure and then realize later the senior officers say, sorry, we got that wrong. People make mistakes. We've got to acknowledge human frailty. We have all people should have grace and extend that. That's not ideal, of course, but it is a, actually a healthy message overall. We've said that and speak up. You do have large freedoms as long as you're in genuine public space. If you need permission from a council, you need to be careful. But if it's public, you're fine. Um, and as long as you do that, in a, you know, there's some guidelines as to how you would best do that. But again, the police have largely affirmed the right. So that's a positive thing. Um, and in a more contested culture, and this is an interesting point, a guy, Charles Taylor, a Canadian theologian and philosopher makes, we are, everybody feels the contest. Everybody feels their beliefs are under pressure. We obviously think that as Christians because that's the world we live in. But actually other people are feeling their beliefs, Muslims and, and, and Jews, secularists and atheists are also feeling under pressure. Dawkins doesn't get a free ride anymore either. Mm. Everybody's pushing back on everybody else. So again, we're living in a yes. contested culture and we need to, re, I think, flip that to the more contending for what it can look like and just be careful not mm. to get in a mindset that always feels a bit defensive that we're always, we're being picked on. Just be a little careful of that language. And I think the other thing I've noticed sometimes with Christians is we'll be very quick to sign the petition to say, let the street preacher go free. But then some Christians will do that on the one hand, whilst also signing a petition to say, don't build a mosque here. And you think, well, we've got to be consistent here. If you believe in freedom of religion, you have to allow for freedom of religion of all faiths, not just Christianity. Yeah, so I remember uh, last Easter, there was a burrito chain in Northern Ireland put out an ad that wasn't very uh, appropriate about Jesus rising from the dead and looking for a burrito. And I, I wrote a piece saying, I defend their right to do it. I do find it offensive. I think they're unwise to have done it. They did it on the morning of the Sri Lanka bombing attacks that came out. 
But I said, fundamentally, if I want the right to articulate my views, this is what free speech means. And I got a long enough article piece, so most people were okay with that. One or two Christians were like, oh, right. And I was like, yeah, that's the point, guys. We, I'm not looking special privilege. That's no good to us, as you're saying. We have to say free speech for everybody. We have to believe enough in the story that we're telling. The biblical story is enough to win people. I just want the right to be able to share it and to lean into it. And I don't want that clamped down. And obviously, we've seen some incidents around that. And we need to be really careful to protect the free speech, not just of us, but of everybody. Mm. You mentioned uh, it in passing just a, just a moment ago, and um, it's transgender. And people, some people are saying that this is the next big issue facing the church. We're all, I think, well aware of the various sexuality debates, and we haven't even gone into the Ashes case. Um, but is this the next one? Is transgender going to be the next big issue that Christians need to get their head around? I think it's an important issue because our culture is confused in it. So what I say to churches is we, we're not actually the ones confused. Now, I'm not saying we have a simple answer, don't, but, but at the same time, it's actually our culture's confused and is asking a question about transgender at many levels. And actually, we, the church, should be part of a conversation. And if we do that well, it actually could be a really interesting moment because actually I'm speaking to more and more parents who are going, yeah, I'm a bit uneasy about this. Women's sports who are raising some questions. We've seen in Scotland a little tip back. SNP were really pushing it and then got pushed back. Westminster government were really pushing it and now kind of slowed down were some cases against Tavistock Clinic in London, the main clinic that provides the treatment because the kids are saying, hold on, can a 12-year-old really give informed consent against the will of their parents? So it's opening up lots of questions. We're finding ourselves making common cause with kind of feminists, lesbians and free speech advocates. So I was involved in the EA resource Transformed and we've got a series of resources on our website. If I can say that, you know, eauk.org forward slash trans. We put them all together there. Um, because we thought it was important. Is it the next big issue? It's kind of the arrowhead of where culture's going. I think it's an important issue. It's not kind of the definitive one, but I think it really helps us think. And the reason I also like it is there's not a simple proof text that you can go to as a Christian, so it's making Christians think. Mm. And, and I think that's a good thing. I'm, I'm a fan of that. Mm. We need to think better because you can't just go, there's that verse there that deals yeah. with it. We actually need to think kind of theologically and biblically. Yes. Why our body's important? What's the issue with something like Gnosticism or, or Platonic thought that says, oh, the outer world doesn't matter. Have we played into that as, as evangelicals sometimes? Oh, it's just my soul being saved. There's an inner me that will float off to heaven. No, no, no. This whole world, this whole earth, this creation is going to be restored and renewed. Mm. So bodies are important. Yeah. Therefore, transgender is a much more interesting topic to discuss theologically. So, so bringing it, but bringing it down into the into the practical realm for a minute. If you're a church leader, because you're involved in, in local church, let's say you're a youth leader, and you're working with various teenagers, and a and a teenager turns up who says, right, I might have been born male, but I'm now identifying as a woman. And you've got your weekend away coming up and boys in one room and girls in the other. What, what do you do in a, in a scenario like that? So a couple of things. I mean, one is churches uh, will take slightly different approaches, potentially. The biggest thing we're saying is get into conversation with the trans young person. So most of them, if they're a young person, won't have transitioned because you can't. And therefore, they're probably likely to be uncomfortable with their body and there may be in some state of how they're identifying. So in all likelihood, they'd probably prefer like a single room or something. So we can get a little bit creative and you have to make your decision as a church what's a good balance here in terms of uh, protecting that young person and honoring them, honoring the views of your wider constituency who may have questions as well. Uh, and so finding a way through it. So actually, if we're, if we're creative and thoughtful, we can often find a way that keeps both groups uh, happy, if you like. And then, but we're on a longer discipleship journey because you don't want to just end it at that moment. You know, people talk to me, for example, about naming and I'm saying, I'm okay with using a trans person's name. I said that in an interview. With yeah, Justin. I wanted to pick up on that actually because that was something I found found really really helpful actually, and and personally I, I agreed with um, that if someone comes to you and again let's say they're born born male but they're identifying and they're using a, a female name, that your advice would be to use that person's female name in conversation with them, which which I would I would agree with. But I know some Christians have had had issues with that and said actually for some Christians they feel like that's a bit of a compromise, a bit of a step too far to use that person's preferred term when they feel like the objective moral truth of the matter is different to how they are identifying. So what's, just, just tease out a little bit more and explain yeah, your thinking. Yeah, so in Transformed, we said, look, there are d there's two options in the booklet because, uh, yeah, again, there's a breadth of views. So we're saying there's a certain amount we can hold a flag and here's what we think the text is saying. There's some place we're saying that there's different views. So I, and then what I was clear about when I'm speaking and in talks that I've done is I was happy. I met all the different trans groups. So if I didn't use the person's name, we don't get to even have the meeting. There's nothing happens there. And I think probably the majority, more than the majority of people I spoke to, 
did say names, generally okay, small group, cautious, and I understand. So they basically believe they would be taking part in a fiction that would they would be coming part of a lie. Uh, so I understand what they're saying, but I think at that point there's no conversation. So where does the missional moment come? I did draw an analogy to Daniel. Now I said that I'm not saying this is a kind of definitive. I want to be really careful about my exegesis, but Daniel took on the name Belteshazzar, and that's not where he drew the line. He drew it at a different point about food offered to idols. So I thought that was at least interesting and noteworthy to say, yeah, okay, we, names are definitely important in the biblical text, but is this the hill I want to die on, on mm. the name? So I think there's discretion there. I find pronouns a little trickier. So generally, again, with Jenny Ann, who, we t- who did the interview with Justin, I would probably have referred to her as she when I was in conversation. Afterwards, I might have altered it. It's not a, it wasn't a big thing to me. What I wouldn't like, and I think I said this, I don't want to be compelled to use it. So because... Jenny Ann admitted herself during that interview, for example, that she had trans, he to she, that was the transition, sorry, male to female. But they said, she said, I hadn't transitioned my sex, I transitioned my gender. And we were actually able to talk a little bit around that. So that to me was like a healthy dialogue around this and shows some of it is just complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's where I, we let, in the book that we sort of talked about that, that I'm very sympathetic to somebody like I need to be Jordan Peterson in the free speech. Yes. What interests me on Jordan is that he, that's how he came to fame. But he anchors that really in an understanding of Genesis. And he unpacks over 12 lectures in Toronto, three hours each. People paid to come in here. I mean, I listened to some of them, incredible stuff. But he says, because God spoke and the creation came into being, the speech acts are the most definitive moment. Because of that, speech is the most fundamental thing. Therefore, I don't, you know, free speech is critical to him. I mean, it's a fascinating way to build his argument for somebody who has, I mean, I think he believes in the biblical text as interesting material may believe in God or the Father in some sense, doesn't in anything I've heard have any understanding of Jesus and the Spirit and grace, mm. but fascinatingly anchors so much around free speech. So I do think we take speech seriously, but we've also got the missional imperative, Jesus, the woman at the well. He's meeting our point of need. He's ultimately moving towards transformation. So for me, I'm trying to see that bigger picture mm. and have those conversations in a missional way. This has been said so much, it's almost become a bit of a cliche, but there are still some who are concerned that Christians, we're known for what we're against more than what we're for. And even in this conversation, I've brought up two hot topics where Christians are generally known for being against gay marriage or against some of the some of what would be seen as transgender freedoms. How can we, as Christians, and I guess how can you as the Evangelical Alliance champion Christians as being known for what we're for more than just what we're against? Yeah, so on the trans, for example, we try to be a little bit more cautious and nuanced. So we, I don't think we are as simply against. Um, and I think actually culture's really intrigued by that because they're not sure. Culture doesn't quite want to do. It's not against it either, but it's not exactly for it. Certainly self-ID to most people seems too far. The implications on kids seems like very significant. You've got to remember that five years ago, the majority going were young boys. Now it's teenage girls. Nobody seems to be allowed even to research that. There's real concern. So that's just an example of how already I think we can begin to shift. I actually find that really missional with a lot of parents, with a lot of free speech advocates in some of the spaces I'm in. I appreciate I'm in a slightly nerdy world on that. <laughs> but I suppose we've tried to then reframe the larger conversation on being human. So we've launched this podcast this week, in fact, in EA land, and that'll come out soon with my colleague, Joe Frost. And we're saying we want to put artificial intelligence or sexuality, or rest, or work, in that larger issue. So how do we get on the positive? We think being humans to be made in the image of God, that's what the text says. That's not just a statement that isn't, like that's an active verb. It is to to model his image, to be placed into his whole temple, the whole of creation, and that's what it is for everybody. The reason we object to human trafficking or whatever it is, because we think everybody's a divine image bearer. And I actually don't think the secular story gives a good reason to oppose some of those things. I think Richard Dawkins is the most honest about that. We're a collection of cells, we kind of make up our own rules, and it's not really clear how and why, and it's kind of by collective agreement. That will default to the benefit of the strong, too often, and the powerful. Whereas we're saying, no, everybody's an image bearer. So I think that's, hopefully, this is ways we get front foot, and then we don't get fearful about something like AI, because we're saying, well, this is what we understand to be made in the image of God. This is going to impact work, but we're gifted individuals, so how do we reframe our thinking? It's going to impact how we do relationships. One of the futurologists says that by 2050, there'll be more human-robot sexual interactions than human-human. And that's really worrying because like, what that sets is like pornography. You set an ideal that no real relationship can model. So we want to have real concerns about what AI might do there. But it's going to do some incredible stuff medically in terms of those with disabilities. Reading about a friend who used to work at Jubilee last night who's got these AI knees and, and the slow process of relearning to walk with those. 
but it's about so what enhances and augments what it is to be human and what then fundamentally changes and undermines that but until we understand what it is to be in the imago day so that's kind of front foot positive for us this is the only way to see the world and it shapes our identity it shapes relationships it shapes our sense of purpose and those are three things that people ask me about a lot implicitly in their questions and if I was to be asked, like, where would you love to have the conversation with the world, if you like, I'd say on identity, relationships and purpose, which is kind of where the world wants to have it right now. We just need to get a bit better at the conversation, but it's asking it in areas I think we have something to say. Mm. So let's talk about what the biblical text has to say in a much more refreshing way. It's more than tone. It's a reorientation theologic of what we see the scriptures are saying and signposting people towards Jesus because there is a desperate sense of need. People are like, please tell me there's something more. Please tell me this secular world, isn't it? Everybody says we live in the secular world, but most people don't believe the rational, enlightened story. Like when my dad was dying, he had a sort of brain tumor, it turned out, but in October, November last year, Christians would come and knew he was a Christian, say, praying for you. Some who maybe used to be Christians or wanted to kind of engage us would say, praying for you, but nervously. And I used, <laughs> one part of me wanted to go, are you really? But I had to say, no, that's great, please, and draw them in. But there was a third group were kind of like thinking of you and wishing you well. And as they said it, you could tell some of them felt this is this is a bit limp. And because uh, the consequence is they really think he's just a collection of cells and my love for him is nothing more than a chemical interaction. And they don't really believe that. But they don't have a different story that can say, why do I, why, why am I emotionally you know, upset that my dad is dying? What, they didn't have a way of, you know, so if, it, if you really pushed them and sat down, so no, very few people kind of think that out until a moment of crisis. Mm. And then we all want the person, our beloved person who's dying, something more. Mm. We hope they aren't just dissolving and buried in cells yeah. going away. We think that our love for them is more than a chemical interaction. So all of that say, well, I think we can challenge the story of the world a bit more because mm. people are looking. They're looking in the occult. They're looking in Ouija boards. They're looking in spirituality. They are coming into churches because they don't really believe the narrow secular story that this is it and they were just rational beings. That's no longer working. But they're not quite sure what else. So if we're there offering supernatural miracles, prophetic, Jesus showing up in their lives in a radical way, that's when people go, okay, set aside my questions. That's amazing. What is that? And I want to say yes to all of that. <laughs> and yet at the same time, if we look at the stats on church attendance, it's going in a very negative direction. It just is across across many denominations. I know we can point to individual churches yeah. or individual church movements where wonderful things are happening, there's growth, but the big picture in the UK, if we're being completely honest, is still one of decline. And so as an organisation that believes in telling people the good news about Jesus, there must be a sobering sense in which, well, something of what we're trying to do isn't quite working or connecting with people. Yes. So the two things are, I agree with you, there are the pockets and more than pockets, there are areas of growth and we want to emphasise that. We want to say globally it's growing. Here is one of the blips where it's not uh, in quite the same way. And we can signpost individual examples where it is and there are amazing things happening. I still think overall when we, we are still living with the consequence of shrinking the story down to a very individualized, you're bad, Jesus is the answer, he'll save your soul and take you to heaven when you die. And that isn't working and that doesn't connect for people. So people who got that are leaving the church because that doesn't, that doesn't cut it in the current world. And if you're still articulating that, that's not going to win very many people. They might come for a season, but when something really gets in under, it doesn't deal with the richness of creation and, and the restoration renewal of all things. Like So climate change should be a front foot issue where we should be going, yes, we absolutely believe this is creation care 101, come on, but we're not. And some of the sexuality and relation stuff we should be better at. So, sorry, you're getting onto my passion now, so I will get, you know, that's where I'm saying we do need to be better. And the reason we're not, is because we shrunk the story down. In fact, we shrunk it not only to the half story. Because they're saying you're really bad is awkward, we just shrunk it to Jesus loves you. That was the other solution. That's so tragically bad, it just doesn't work. I mean, it's kind of borderline heresy and, and people might buy it for a day or a week or a month, but when something comes along, it doesn't cut it. They need not the quarter story, but the fuller, richer story. And I think the church needs to live into that, both academic or intellectually if you like we need yes. to communicate it, but we actually need to live into the practices of that sure what's the because i'd love to talk for another hour just about that but seeing <laughs> as we don't have time what are the can you point people to a couple of books maybe that get across how can you understand the bigger picture story and how can you move away just from a, a watered down overly simplistic presentation of the gospel to something much more fulfilling and and big picture are there any yeah, tom wright books? has written about it but i'm trying to think in what book right now um the surprised great, by hope is one surprised I hope definitely often pulls, quote, yeah, that some of those themes out. And he talks about the bigger themes of beauty and justice and uh, that. Um, the great drama of scripture, um, 
by uh, Craig Bartholomew, and I think it's Goheen is good is really good on the on the larger drama piece. If you're looking for how that all stitches together, the big framework of the story. Um, Jimmy Smith um, probably are what you love is start not not so much the story, but then how this has to come into practice and habit. Like we've got to live into these habits mm. and reform how we do worship. Worship is not something we sing on a Sunday. It's got to change the story that we're in. And I think people like John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers in this cultural moment, and hopefully very soon. Pete and Joe and, and being human when podcast <laughs> land will be beginning to frame and articulate some of this a little bit better. But we've got to resource the church. Um, so those are some of the, the the people doing a good... I mean, Tim Chester's got one on creation, new creation again, s- sets the art. Because this is not one particular branch of the church. I think across the board, we're saying we've got to anchor our story better mm. in the richness of the text. What's been the best day of your career and what's been the worst? Oh, wow. Um, in my career... Oh, there may be. I, I remember the Asher's decision completely caught me off guard. So the first one caught me off guard because I was pretty convinced they would have won at the very quickly for those who have been living under a rock for the last <laughs> yeah. three years. The gay cake case is the shorthand for the it. That's an awful way, case. but that is how it was always described by the BBC. This was the cake. The, the the bakers in Belfast who wouldn't bake the cake with the message on it, and it became a really fascinating case because I was a lawyer, knew a lot of the people involved, followed it closely. And uh, so anyway, they lost the first couple of rounds, came to the Supreme Court. All the indications were that nothing had fundamentally moved. This is a relatively liberal Supreme Court. I happened to be in London anyway. Came down that morning, I walked in, hadn't been able to speak to a Texas, one of the barristers who wasn't even there. My best friend who was representing Ashers hadn't come over. But some, in hindsight, his text had given me a glint, a glint that he regretted that. But anyway, <laughs> walked in. So completely no warning. And Asher's one, I couldn't believe it. Because I think it's the right decision. It's not about winning. I think it's fundamentally about free speech. But having journeyed that over four years, that was certainly a, a wonderful moment. And I think it's a very important legal precedent that I definitely could talk more about. But that, that's, that's a, that was a highlight day for sure. Mm. And the worst? I think the abortion law changing in Northern Ireland, uh, which happened uh, late October there. Um, my dad was also very ill. So it was a very complex time for us. And we had worked really hard around that. We tried to reframe the debate, both lives matter. We really wanted to truly say mum and baby are both important in this conversation. We need to look better at it. And frankly, I think we were beginning to win the conversation in Northern Ireland and it came from outside, from left field and caught us all off guard. And uh, we this had invested- This was when, when the, the government here in Westminster effectively- Yeah, so well, actually like Westminster, against all the precedents that said you don't deal with a devolved matter and abortion was devolved, etc., came in from nowhere. So we were caught off guard. Everybody was caught off guard. Uh, the government had previously said they just wouldn't allow it to go in that way, and it, it had gone through. And honestly, I mean, 10,000-plus people gathered together not long after that. We were part of that. Uh, we engaged all the politicians, but we didn't have a local government. And in that moment, to do this thing where we were the beacon, the one place that was doing something differently, where, if anything, the conversation around abortion is arguably shifting in different ways. It's becoming more interesting globally. Americans, younger people are more interested in saying we might need limits here. Even in the UK, more conversation as, as, te- as uh, medical uh, technology like advances and we see babies able to survive at 21, 22 weeks. We've gone beyond 24, maybe to 27. We don't even know yet. So that was a hugely gutting one for the team and for all of us because that, that's real lives. Mm. We, we, we ran a campaign and said 100,000 people were alive because we didn't have that legislation. We got challenged. We were able to verify that number. So we know 100,000 people are alive in Northern Ireland today because we didn't have that. So we know what the consequence is and bring it in. So yeah, deeply gutting, that's real lives. What does the future mean on that particular issue? Is there hope that things can change? We honestly don't know. So we don't know what uh, it's, it is currently sitting with the Northern Ireland Secretary of State. Bizarrely, one man genuinely gets to decide this unless he did something absolutely nuts. Westminster would have to actively all vote to change it. So he basically has control. Right. He will listen, I think, to the Northern Ireland parties now that they're sitting again. But they're all a bit edgy around it too. And they all have a lot of other things to be doing. It's not technically with those parties. Now we know that they are feeding it a little bit. We actually don't know. The consultation he put out was so far beyond what he had to do, it really caught us off guard again because we met the officials and they said they would be reasonable. So we were really quite freaked out. You know, they were talking about dropping it from two doctors down to one doctor, despite the evidence in the UK that two is already a problem, going down to one because so many doctors are Christians who wouldn't find one, saying it might not even need to be a doctor, we could maybe just go to one nurse. You know, these kind of things that were going, wow, these are incredible reductions in safeguards, mm-hmm. like what crazy stuff. So. Until we know what it is, and that'll be before the 31st of March, we won't be able to fully engage. Mm. Like the hope and prayer, absolutely, as they scale this way back. Mm. We do, we, last thing we want to do is go beyond here because we know this is one of the 
people I think forget the UK is already one of the most liberal abortion laws in the world like most places in Europe it's at 12 weeks so we're the outlier at 24 and for Northern Ireland to potentially go beyond having had virtually none it's just staggering and it's tragic for me. Well, we've spoken about so many big issues. Um, you strike me as somewhat of an optimist anyway, but I'd love to finish on a positive note. What is the What encourages you about the UK church as you go into this role? What do you think we're doing well and getting right? I think we're beginning to recognise the scale of the problem. I do think we're beginning to live into this fuller story. The churches are growing, uh, both in the more reformed and more charismatic side are taking the text seriously. They're orthodox, if you want to put it in shorthand, in some of their beliefs. And they're saying that's what attracts people. Just selling out and kind of giving up on everything isn't actually working. So I'm excited about that. I want to see those guys keep talking to each other and make sure we don't get into silos again. But in some sense, stripping away nominalism is not the worst thing in the world. So the church may be in decline. A lot of those people are people that we're showing up, not really involved. Let's get back to a core who truly believe or and even from there just, we can build. Or even just ticking Christian on a survey and not even turning up at all, of course. Well, potentially that. So that's not that interesting. So that's not really a loss because they weren't really in in the first place. <laughs> so maybe the group that are there, and we get signs of this for sure, those who are now showing up. If you show up now in your 30s, you're serious about this. And the data tells us that they're more likely to share their faith, more likely to be engaged and committed. And I do think we're seeing church leaders unite again. We're seeing excitement about sharing Jesus in this moment. We're seeing a kind of gospel forever coming. Because again, if you're going to be in, you're going to talk about it. There's no point in just pretending or sneaking along to church. If you're turning up now, we're going to be real about it. But we're also seeing a kind of move, I think, in the supernatural, the spirit pouring out. Again, across church denominations and people taking the text serious and getting mm. into it. So I'm excited about people getting passionate about their faith again. Yeah. Well, Peter Linus, it's been said that in polite conversation, you should never mention religion or politics. I'm <laughs> delighted that we've talked extensively about both. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Sam. I'm Sam Howes. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. That was my conversation with Peter Linus, the UK Director of the Evangelical Alliance. For more great interviews just like that one, why not check out Premier Christianity magazine? That is the magazine that I edit. It's out in print each and every month. If you want to see it, we will send you the latest issue completely free of charge and with no obligation to subscribe at all. It's a fantastic offer. I want you to take advantage of it and get your hands on the latest issue that features news, reviews and loads more great stuff. If you enjoyed that conversation with Peter, you're sure to love the magazine. So go to premierchristianity.com right now if you want to claim your free sample copy. Do it now, premierchristianity.com. It's been a pleasure to have your company here on The Profile this afternoon. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.